Our gospel reading this morning is from Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. And if you had not picked up on it to this point, we are just reading each week the next section of the gospel of Mark. And this week we get to one of my all-time favorite parables that Jesus tells. And um, don't get me wrong, they're all good. But one of the reasons I like this one so much is because this one, he actually comes back around and explains what in the world it means. Uh, So we're not just left wondering. And this is, yeah, Mark 4, 1 through 20, where we get both the parable and the explanation. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made, and we thank you for your word that you have given to us. Lord, we do ask that as we hear your word read and proclaimed today, that it would fall on our ears and on our hearts like seed falling on good soil. Or that we would be those who bear much fruit, showing ourselves to be your disciples. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 4, verses 1 through 20 Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching he said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so they did not bear grain. Still, other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some thirty, some sixty, some a hundred times what was sown. Then our New Testament reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 6 starting in verse 14 and going on through the first verse of chapter 7. 
Paul writing to the church in Corinth. It says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as I mentioned earlier in the children's sermon, we will be talking about Joseph, and I do want us to hear about what happens with Joseph today, but more than that, I want us to hear uh, what happens with um, some of the other brothers, particularly Judah. But before we get into any of that, I want us to think together about uh, how we handle it. We talked last week about pride and how pride is essentially uh, competitive. That's what C.S. Lewis said about it, how it's the chief of all sins. And how when it comes to pride, it's the kind of thing where it's, it's not that you're, you're not proud of having money. You're proud of having more money than somebody else. You're not proud of being beautiful. You're proud of being more beautiful than someone else. That kind of thing. And so the question that I want us to think about even before we get started this morning is uh, how do you handle personally not on the outside, but how do you handle internally, yourself, personally, the successes of someone that you consider to be a rival or an enemy or just someone you don't like? When that person who, perhaps you've got someone who springs to mind, when that person advances in a way that you thought maybe you should advance. How do you handle that? This is something everyone has to deal with at some point. And there are natural ways of dealing with that that are very unhelpful, unhealthy, and destructive. But there are other ways too. But as we are thinking on that, we come to our sermon passage this morning from Genesis 37, starting in verse 12. If you remember what happened in Genesis uh, 37, verses 1 through 11, that's where you have all these brothers with the dad playing favorites. And he gives one of the brothers, Joseph, a special robe of some sort. We talk about this coat of many colors, but it's some sort of special robe that marked him out as the favorite and as the one who would uh, have the larger inheritance, that kind of thing. Not only did he have this special coat, but he also was having these dreams that seemed to be from God that were letting him know that he was going to be in a position of authority over his brothers and even over his father and mother at some point in his life. And he tells everybody about it. And so we have the same brothers 
who are already jealous of his status as the favored son are now hearing him talk about ruling over them somehow, some way. So what happens next? Verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their flocks, no, their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man said. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. I'm going to pause right there. This is part one of the story. In part one of the story, we see Jacob, or Israel, sending his son Joseph to check on the other brothers. So apparently Joseph didn't go with them. He's back home. Presumably, as the youngest two, uh, Benjamin is back home as well. And so you've got, you know, the ten older brothers who are out there with the flocks. And he says, hey, why don't you go check on them? Now, do you remember what happened the only other time we've heard of that Joseph came back from uh, checking up with his brothers? This was earlier in chapter 37. We read about it last week. It kind of goes by quickly, but I'm sure it didn't in their minds. This says in verse 2 of chapter 37, introduces Joseph by saying, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Oh, interesting. So he comes back, and I don't know what the bad report was. I don't know what it was that they were doing they weren't supposed to be doing, but he comes back, and he's like, let me tell you all about it. So, yeah, they're not going to like that. And now, since then, we've had several other layers of problem in their relationship to the point that it says they can't even speak a kind word to him. And now they're off on their own again, probably really glad to not be dealing with him right then. And then their dad is like, oh, hey, I've got a great idea. Why don't you go check on him for me? I know that you'll come back and you'll tell me everything that's going on. This will be great. And of course, they know that Joseph will go back and tell everything that's going on. They don't like that. And they don't like all the other stuff either. And so when he comes, they see him in the distance. Before he even reaches them, they plot to kill him. Here comes that dreamer 
Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. So their plan at this point is just get rid of him because he is the one who is standing in the way of what they want. They want their father's affection. They want the larger inheritance. They don't want him to be giving bad reports to their dad. They don't want him flaunting and being arrogant around them. And so this just solves all the problems. He's the problem. Get rid of him. It's so simple. (laughs) Ah, It's also so familiar. Does this ring any bells from anywhere earlier in Genesis? With any other brothers who may have had some rivalry? Maybe really early on generationally? (laughs) Where you have Cain and Abel? And Cain is jealous because Abel is favored, not by Adam, but by God. And so Cain decides, well, there's an easy, simple solution. Just get rid of Abel. Sounds really familiar, doesn't it? And yet at the time, God comes to Cain and warns him against taking this action. He says in Chapter 4, verse 7. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And so sin is depicted by God to Cain like a wild beast that wants to devour him. Like a ferocious animal that is going to destroy him. He didn't have to give in to it, though. But it's if he goes through with killing Abel, he is allowing that sin to devour him. Let's get back to Genesis 37. Same situation. But now we have the brothers saying, let's get rid of Joseph just like Cain did with Abel, which solved nothing, by the way. <laughs> we never learn. But so let's, let's get rid of Joseph and we'll say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Do you hear it? Like they don't even realize what's happening here. But if they get rid of him, he's not being devoured by a ferocious animal. They are. That they are giving in to the destructive nature of sin in their own lives. It's an old story. It goes all the way back to the beginning. This is the plan. We um, kind of skipped over the part, all this information about Shechem and Dothan. Uh, the, I think the important part there is this is far from home where this is taking place. Jacob had sent him on to Shechem, which was a decent hike from where they were most likely living at the time. And so we're looking at probably about 50 miles away where they had gone. And so, yeah, go check on them. It's a couple days journey to get there. Then he gets there, and they're not there, and he actually goes like another 15 miles past that. Anyway, but it's far. 
It's far away where this is happening. So they think, Dad doesn't see. We can get away with it. We can do whatever we want. Tell him whatever story we make up. He'll never know. Reuben, of course, the oldest, is like, this sounds like a bad idea. <laughs> Maybe we don't want to do that. We'll just put him in this cistern. So you got this large area for collecting water, but it's dry right then. We'll just put him in that. That'll be great. He'll be as good as dead. We'll just leave him for dead. And of course, it says that Reuben's saying this so that he can go back and rescue him later. So verse 23, where we pick up the story. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, in case you forgot that. And they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? And again, we pause. This is where they have actually um, done what they're going to do to him. They strip him of his robe. They throw him into the cistern. And then at some point when Reuben is not around, they come up with a different plan to sell him. It's not, it's not leave him for dead. Because, I mean, after all, he's our brother, right? We should sell him into slavery, like you would do with someone you care about. Well, at least that way we can also make a little money out of the deal. If he dies here, what's that for us? Who is it that came up with that plan? Judah. Don't forget that. At the end of this book of Genesis... We are looking at the story of Joseph, but we are really also looking at the story of Judah. And we are going to see uh, kind of things happen through Joseph's life where he ends up different than he starts. And we're going to see things in Judah's life where he ends up different than he starts. So make a note of every time Judah comes up. Next week he'll come up a lot. Um, But this is the plan. We will profit from getting rid of our brother. And he will still be just as gone. They sell him. Reuben is uh, not happy about this. But then, what do they do? Go along with the plan. Verse 31. Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. And they took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. 
And Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. We have one more verse we're going to hang on to for a second. The brothers at this point have succeeded in their plan. They have gotten rid of Joseph. Now they can have all the affection that their dad was giving to him, right? Doesn't work that way, does it? They think they found a very simple way to solve their problem, and it didn't solve anything. Joseph wasn't devoured by a ferocious animal. But I hope you see the brothers were. But the destructive nature of sin in their own lives has really messed up this family now. Because when their brother was having his dreams, was bragging about them, was being favored by their father, they couldn't handle it. They couldn't take that kind of feeling slighted and still celebrate for him as their brother. And so instead of celebrating with him and saying, good for you, (laughs) they saw him as a threat to get rid of. There is a heartbreaking section later on in Genesis, where if you know where this story goes, um, you know, Joseph does not end up dying in slavery. But there is more to the story. And later, the brothers um, face an issue where they say, we're now being punished because we didn't listen to the boy's cries when he pleaded for his life or something along those lines. And so you have like this little glimpse into what it was like during this time when they had him in the cistern and they're selling him to slavery and he is or they're tearing the coat off of him and he's pleading for his life and they do not listen and they do not care. One of the lines in this whole passage that always hits me weird is the opening line of verse 25. Just read uh, in verses 23 and 24, where it says, When he came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and they threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. That's what you just read. They've just done this horrible thing to their brother. And then verse 25 opens, As they sat down to eat their meal, and it just seems so cold, doesn't it? You find out later they're hearing the cries of their brother to save his life. Don't do this thing. Going on with lunch. So cold, so callous, so uncaring. Almost like they don't even, not not that he's not even their brother anymore. It's like he's not even human anymore. He has become nothing to them but an obstacle to get rid of. So they do. 
They get rid of their obstacle. They break their father's heart. And then we get the final verse. If you're in our Bible study on Wednesday when we're talking about the book of Ruth, this will sound familiar to you because, uh, and I've preached on this before in the book of Ruth, how the last line of chapter 1 of Ruth is one of my favorite lines in the whole book because it's at a point when everything seems so hopeless for Naomi. And then you get to the last line, and in just one brief line, it explains how everything is in the right place. Everybody is, is at the right place at the right time, setting up how God is actually going to redeem the whole thing by the end of the story. It's beautiful. The same thing here. How in this chapter, Jacob's grief doesn't get the last word. His brother's lie doesn't get the last word. Instead, we get the voice of the narrator saying, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Hmm. I wonder if any of that might come into play later in the story. It all does. In fact, if you've read this story more than once, when you hit that, that is the, the line that lets you know that God has set everything up for a redemption story to come. And so at this point, things seem really dark and hopeless for Joseph. Things seem really dark and hopeless for Jacob. But the story's not over. And last week we talked about this trajectory of going down before you go up. We're seeing that right now in Joseph's life. We're also seeing it in Judah's life. We've seen it in Jacob's life. But this, meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. That line is this hint that even though we're still on the way down, the story is not over, that there will be something else to come. Now, two things. I don't know who it is that you see yourself as, kind of as you read this story, who you most relate to in the story. I know for me, for most of my life, I completely identify with Joseph, probably because of the name. And so I read the story. I'm like, oh, it's so unfair. I can't believe what they do to him. And here he is crying out for help and, and then nothing. And then he gets sold in slavery. And how terrible would that be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I do think there's something to that. I think David saw himself as Joseph from time to time. You read Psalm 40. I mean, listen to how Psalm 40 reads. The opening lines, anyway. He uses this image. So imagine instead of David saying these things, imagine it's Joseph after he is sold into slavery. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Doesn't that just sound like Joseph's story right there? 
He's in the pit. He's in the mire. He's in the, the, uh, the cistern. And he cries out, and nobody hears except God. God hears. And he's rescued out of the pit. He's put back on firm ground. And his story goes on from there to be one that is uh, glorifying to God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. So I think there is a good place for that. And if you do feel like you're in a situation similar to Joseph's, where you've been treated unfairly, etc., or where you're crying out and no one is, seems to hear, I think it's good to remember this. But I also think that we're more meant to see ourselves in the brothers, though that's a lot more uncomfortable. The second thing is my brother said a long time ago and reminded me again recently, and he got this from somewhere else, but have you ever seen the TV show The Office? Most people, yeah. Some people, no. Okay, doesn't matter. <laughs> but he said, uh, the character name's coming up. He said uh, that most people, when they watch The Office, uh, identify themselves with Jim and Pam. They think that's who they are in the show, the characters that represent them the best. Said when really most people are Michael and Dwight. <laughs> For those of you who know, there you go. If you don't know the show, what that means is that you have the uh, characters who are um, <laughs> likable and self-aware, and we go, yeah, yeah, that's me. I'm likable and self-aware. And then you have others who are often not so likable and just completely not self-aware. And it's like, uh, yeah, actually, we're probably more like that. <laughs> mm. I think the same thing here. I think we want to identify with Joseph and kind of have a, oh, poor is me, everybody's done me wrong sort of attitude. And I think actually what we're supposed to see ourselves in this story as those who don't handle it very well when someone else has success, when someone else has promise of good things, that we think ought to be ours. I think that we, more often than we want to admit, see our rivals not as people, but as obstacles to get rid of. We think we find simple solutions. All we have to do is a little of this, a little of that, lie, cover it up, problem solved. And so we make everything worse. This is the pattern of human history. Over and over again, even today. But this is also a story that very clearly points us to Jesus. I mean, very clearly, if you haven't noticed it yet. I mean, it's all over the place. Can you think of any parallels between this story and Jesus' story? When you think of someone who has promised great things, when you think of someone who is beloved by his father, when you think of someone who is betrayed by those close to him, who goes down 
into the depths of the earth. But then it was raised again to a new life. There's a lot here. And in fact, the whole of the Joseph story continues to uh, point us forward to the Jesus story. The whole of the Judah story continues to point us forward to the Jesus story. But this is um, more than just pointing us there. It points us there for a reason. And that is because Jesus is the solution. We look at all these things, and my little metal puzzles here. We look at the various situations in the world and in our lives, and we go, oh, I know what we need to do. Here's what we ought to do. And then we try it. Well, that didn't work. That made it worse. Well, that didn't work. That made it worse. Oh, here's what we ought to do. And then Jesus steps in and says, no, let me tell you, I am the way and the truth and the life. Right? We do have two options. We have the option to follow the way of Joseph's brothers. To let the wild animal devour us. We don't even realize it. Or we have the option to follow Jesus. To be his apprentices. Or, Bible word, disciples. (laughs) Same thing. To learn from him how we're actually to live. How we're actually to treat not only the people we like, but even the people we don't like. How to purify ourselves, as uh, Paul was saying to the church in Corinth. Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. And as we read last week in Colossians, a lot of times when we think about what it means to purify ourselves, we go straight to all the uh, more salacious sexual sins kind of thing. And like, as long as, <clears throat> as long as we're not doing that, we're good. And Paul says in Colossians, you're going to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, which includes sexual immorality, impurity, lust. You're like, okay, there you go. Those are on the list. Yes, they are. But he continues and evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And then he says later, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And then a bit later he says, therefore as God's chosen people, Holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. When you think about Joseph's brothers who are operating anger, rage, malice, uh, lying to their father, etc. 
this is the pattern. This is normal. This is what we do apart from the grace of God in our lives. But there is another way, and it is a better way. So he says, get rid of those things. Seek that out in your life uh, and how to get rid of that. But it's not just get rid of that so, okay, now we don't do anything. He says, no, no, no. Here's what now you put on. You put on the things that look like Jesus. You put on compassion. That being able to hear the voice of the brother in the pit. Being able to recognize him not just as an obstacle, not just as a person, but as your brother who you have been charged to care for and to genuinely love. This is the way of Jesus. Very different than the way of the world. But as he says, he is the way and the truth and the life. And the question always comes back to, so do we believe him? And do we really trust him? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you've made. And we do thank you for your word that you've given to us. And we do pray again that you would help your word to fall on good soil in our hearts and our lives. God, that it would take root and that it would grow. That it would not be choked out. God, that it would bear much fruit. Lord, I pray all of this in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray. Saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not in temptation. Deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.